Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the big reveal. Moments ago, the For the People Act, Democrats' transformative voting reform bill, failed to get enough votes to head to the floor for debate. But what we really learned tonight is the truth about what Republicans believe. Now, Republicans have for decades been claiming that the true reforms needed for voting in America are all about election integrity. They've pushed voter ID laws and sought to purge voters from the rolls. Remember Florida in 2000 and Georgia just last year? But tonight, Republicans reveal that those things were all pretty much BS. Because given the chance to debate those very Republican-friendly ideas on voting, they punted. Not one Republican voted to advance debate on the bill. Surprise! And because the bill did not meet the 60-vote threshold to clear a filibuster, it will not get the chance to be debated. Cue the schoolhouse rock song, I'm Just a Bill. Vice President Harris, who's been tasked with the voting rights portfolio by President Biden, presided over the chamber vote, and she spoke to reporters afterwards. And I think it is clear, certainly, for the American people, that when we're talking about the right to vote, it is not a Republican concern or a Democratic concern. It is an American concern. This is about the American people's right to vote, unfettered. It is about their access to the right to vote in a meaningful way. Because nobody is debating, I don't believe, whether all Americans have the right to vote. The issue here is, is there actual access to the voting process, or is that being impeded? And uh, the, the bottom line is that the President and I are very clear. We support S-1. We support the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And the fight is not over. Now, the For the People Act would expand voter registration. It would limit political gerrymandering and change campaign finance laws to get much of the dark money out of our politics. And the vote here comes as 14 Republican legislatures across the country have already passed aggressive anti-voting laws. In a last-minute agreement, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who's been on both sides of the bill, nicknamed H1 and S1, agreed to support bringing it to the floor for debate in exchange for a guarantee that his voting reform proposal would make it to the floor for debate as well. The Manchin proposal is the one giving Republicans almost everything that they claim to want. National voter ID, limiting absentee voting, and allowing states to purge their roles. Now, once his proposal surfaced, Manchin switched back to supporting the bill, which he co-sponsored in 2019, but that he changed his mind on in 2021 for a while. But with the Democrats all agreeing to move forward on the bill, the question now is, well, what's next? Majority Leader Schumer vowed to continue the fight while lashing out against his Republican colleagues. The Republican leader uses the language and the logic of the Southern senators in the 60s who defended states' rights, and it is an indefensible position for any senator, any senator, let alone the majority le- minority leader, to hold. This vote, I'm ashamed to say, is further evidence that voter suppression has become part of the official platform of the Republican Party. So what's next? 
With Manchin and Christian Sinema's continued and ferocious defense of the filibuster and with our democracy hanging in the balance and with Republicans now openly revealing that they don't actually care about so-called election integrity, where do we go from here? Joining me now is former Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri, uh, Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University, and Stuart Stevens, senior advisor for the Lincoln Project. Thank you all for being here. And, you know, Claire, I'm going to start with you. Catherine Rampell has a great article in The Washington Post. It sort of presaged what we're seeing now, uh, basically saying that Joe Manchin kind of did Democrats a favor, right? Him putting forward that proposal that um, did a lot of stuff that Democrats, progressive Democrats hate, the idea of doing national voter ID and saying, you know, you could purge your voter rolls and limiting access to uh, voting absentee, he kind of exposed Republicans because that's the stuff they say they want. Well, obviously, they don't want it that much because they've decided uh, we don't want it because, you know, Obama, Barack Obama likes it and Stacey Abrams likes it. What do you make of what we've seen today strategically for Democrats? Joy, I haven't watched uh, the Senate debate very often over the last several years. I actually watched some of the speeches today and I was struck by something. I was struck by the fact that Rob Portman, and Tom Tillis called up the founding fathers and said how the founding fathers wouldn't agree with some of the things in the bill. Well, let me tell you what the founding fathers would be shocked to find out. They would be shocked to find out that we've had an evolution in this country that has left the United States Senate as nothing but a shell of what they envisioned. It is no longer the greatest world's deliberative, the world's greatest deliberative body. They won't even debate. They will no longer amend legislation. They are hiding behind Mitch McConnell and the important, now the all important, the all incumbency policy position of the Republican Party. We can only win if we keep you from voting. Yeah. And just to go stay with you for a second, Claire, because the, what we're seeing is and, you know, they talked about this on Morning Joe this morning is, is a lot of discipline, first of all, from the progressive uh, side of the party that, you know, for Stacey Abrams to come out and say, listen, if we can get voting reform through and we have to give in some of the stuff Manchin wants, fine, we'll do it. President Obama saying it's not perfect, but we're going to go ahead and do it. What Manchin proposed and let's just put up, first of all, what the original for the people act wanted online voter registration, automatically registering voters, same day registration, extending early voting in all 50 states, reducing the role of special interest money, ending political gerrymandering. That's super popular with the American people. What Manchin said that he would do is add a national holiday for Election Day, mandating 15 consecutive days of voting, which would actually help get out more votes, ban partisan gerrymandering, mandate voter ID, decree and allow you know, alternatives like a utility bill, decrease the attorney general's authority to do consent decrees. All that's a lot of that stuff. Did, rep, pro, progressives hate, but they were willing to all buckle together. And in the end, even Manchin and Cinema all voted to advance the bill. Strategically, we're talking now about Amy Klobuchar saying they're going to now do field hearings starting in Georgia. And there's this idea now that they're going to bring Manchin's bill to the floor, see if that gets any Republican votes, which then would essentially clear the way to say, you know, what, we got to do reconciliation. Does that seem like sound strategy to you, having been in that body, uh, Claire? Yeah, repetition is the best friend of political success. And what you're going to see the Democrats do over and over again is continue to emphasize that the Republicans will not work with them on the things that America wants. And there's nothing America wants more than making sure that people are allowed to vote. And Manchin's bill, it may not be perfect, but I'll tell you, it would sure improve the voting rules in my state. 
we you can't vote absentee in Missouri unless you swear you have some kind of medical condition or going to be out of town. There's no motor voter. There's no ab, there's no early voting. I mean, there's a lot of things that would increase participation in my state in Manchin's bill. So let's get it on the floor and let's watch the Republicans hide behind Mitch McConnell's skirts once again. Hey, I'm going to go to you, Stuart, on this because for the law, for, for, I feel like for my whole life, Republicans have been saying we got to have voter ID. We got to be able to purge our voting rolls. Manchin says, OK. And then they say, oh, that's a, the Constitution says no. I mean, I don't understand how this is a sustainable position for Republicans in some of these swing states where, you know, they got some retirements in some states where voters might look at them and say, wait a minute, I thought you wanted this. And now you don't want it just because why? Because Stacey Abrams likes it, too. I mean, is this sustainable for a Republican position? Well, it's a great question. And I think it depends on how much the profile of this uh, gets raised and how it's framed. This should really be framed as a fundamental issue of uh, Americanism. There, there really is no voter fraud that matters in America. I worked in elections for 30 years on the Republican side. If it was there, I would have seen it. It's just not there. It's a, a problem in, uh, that doesn't exist that they're trying to use as an excuse, Republicans are, to limit voting access. I mean, the sham of all this is easily exposed by the fact that when did all these state legislative bills get in, uh, introduced for the most part? When did they get passed, pushed after Donald Trump lost in what they most Republicans still say was an illegal election? So this isn't in good faith. There's not anything about this that is really trying to make our election system better. The Republicans are pushing. Um, I hope it becomes a big issue because voting uh, should be a fundamental right. And you'll know that Republicans are feeling confident when they start supporting efforts to make it easier for people to vote. You know, and Jason, the fact that they couldn't even get the Lisa Murkowski's of the world, Susan Collins came out and said, there's nothing wrong with these bills. We're going to put up a map here of all the places they're doing these anti-voter bills. The fact that they held together, what does that tell you uh, in terms of the Republican position versus the Democratic strategy? Well, it means that the Democratic strategy has to be, I hope, what Chuck Schumer said. You know, Leader Schumer said, hey, this is just the beginning. This is our opening gambit. Vice President Harris said the same thing because the Republicans are not going to change their mind. They're not going to, in any shape or form, be open to any sort of improvements or changes or protection of voting. And you can see it by, and I'll be honest with you, Joy, everybody also knows at the local level, we had polls a couple weeks ago uh, with this in West Virginia, where it's like, look, most people are in favor of For the People Act. A lot of Republicans, Republican voters are in favor of For the People Act. So the Republican Party at a national level, their only interest is trying to put up this boogeyman. I find this whole thing where they're like, this is Stacey Abrams' bill. Stacey Abrams is not AOC or Nancy Pelosi. You're not going to scare America by talking about the lady who goes on NPR and writes books and lives in Georgia, right? Like, that's how desperate they are to try and demonize this by saying, hey, the black person likes it. So the Democrats Democrats plan, which is we're just going to keep doing this over and over again until you guys break or Kristen Sinema breaks or Joe Manchin says, I'm tired of this. I'm sick and tired of coming to D.C. to vote for the same bill. That seems to be the best strategy at this point. Um, again, I'm like a lot of other people. I have issues with a lot of Joe Manchin's proposals, but it's better than nothing. And it might hold the fort enough for 2022 to be an unfair election as opposed to an absolute joke of an election. And, and I think that is the point, Claire, right? If, if Democrats can get through even just mandating early voting in all of these states, they can live to fight another day. 
and come back and go get some of these other things. Let's put up those polls that Jason just talked about. 71 percent back making it easier to vote early in person. 80 percent back photo voter ID. 50 percent back making it easier to vote by mail. 50 percent uh, say voter disenfranchisement is a major problem. Uh, the, the thinking now is that if the mansion bill fails, there are a couple of proposals that have been out there. Um, Al Franken and Norm Ornstein have a proposal that would force the minority to put up 41 votes and hold the floor in order yeah. to filibuster or lower the threshold to 55. Do you think that that's something you know, these senators, is that something that they could get mansion and cinema to go along with? You think? Well, never say never. Um, I think there is some reform that they would consider. Uh, certainly making people own the filibuster rather than calling it from their office and saying, yeah, I object and never even having to show their face or identify who they are. I think that's something I think some of the reforms, Joy, that have been talked about, where if a bill comes out of committee on a bipartisan vote, it goes to the floor for debate and amendment, period. Yeah. Um, And that way, if you get some Republican votes in committee, then you're assured that it isn't going to get buried somewhere uh, behind Mitch McConnell, you know, standing up and saying, no, we won't do it. So I think there are some reforms. But just keep in mind, if Chuck Schumer does this over and over again and then he adds in gun safety. And he adds in some things like help with daycare and elder care. And he adds in the infrastructure and things like that. If he does that and the Republicans continue to block and block and block, not only will we have a good midterm, we'll have a historic victory in the midterms. Stuart, that is my, my question, too, is that Republicans are acting as if they've got a sure thing in 2022. That's not clear to me. People do want infrastructure. They do want police reform. People actually want things. They don't just want own the libs on TV. Is this, is this smart politics for them to just say no to everything, including bridges to be built in, in these local communities, saying no to everything? Well, I think there's two uh, sort of contradictory truths here. It's not smart politics. Uh, but they do have the odds on their side. It's only three times, I think, in the last what hundred years that the uh, party in power has increased uh, the number of seats that they got in uh, off-year elections. Two thousand two was the last one. I worked on the Republican side, but uh, and we were able to do it because of the Iraq War. We nationalized the election, and, that, and that's what Democrats need to do. They need to nationalize this election and make it a referendum on democracy, because that's what it is. And efforts like this to block people from voting is part of a larger strategy that Republicans have. They can't change the way the country is changing, so they want to change the way people are voting. And if you can make that a big national issue uh, that is about what it means to be an American, I think Democrats could win and, and last word to you on this, Jason, uh, Latasha Brown and Black Voters Matter are on an entire tour where they are highlighting this very thing. It doesn't seem Stacey Abrams is going to stop talking about it. It does feel like President Obama's on it. This ain't going away, right? I mean, this is not going to go away just because Mitch McConnell says it does. Right. No, it's not going to go away. But I, I have this warning for Democrats as per the usual. You don't get credit for talking about what the other side keeps you from doing. You get credit for what you get done. So yeah. you can't go into 2022 complaining, saying these guys are taking stuff from me. They got to get something accomplished. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They have to have something that they've accomplished in order to get those people out to vote. Claire McCaskill, Jason Johnson, Stuart Stevens. Great panel. Thank you all very much. Up next on the readout. Dear Capital Insurrectionists, 
thank you for recording your own disgustingly criminal acts. You've made prosecutors' jobs so much easier. Plus, it looks like America will miss President Biden's goal of being 70% vaccinated by the 4th of July. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy will be here to discuss. And there was more going on at the Capitol today when it comes to voting rights, specifically on one of the most basic tenets of American democracy. And yet, we saw some truly ridiculous arguments against it. I will explain in tonight's Absolute Worst. The readout continues after this. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The cases of nearly 500 defendants from the Capitol insurrection continue to wind their way through the courts. Last night, the Department of Justice released video evidence from the case against Charles Donahoe, a president of a local chapter of the Proud Boys, the right-wing militia group that's accused of organizing the Capitol attack. Among the videos is footage of the Proud Boys gathering their forces just before the siege began, with one explicitly saying, let's take the Capitol. Another video shows a defendant admitting on camera that he stole a riot shield from police. But the most dramatic one shows the defendant, among several others, completely overwhelming a thin line of law enforcement officers who were trying to block them from advancing on the east side of the Capitol. I should also note that the graphics on that video were not added by NBC News. As we mentioned yesterday, we're also learning that many insurrection defendants have a history of violence, including Ryan Mock of Minnesota, who was arrested earlier this month. According to court filings, Mock once held a gun to three kids' heads, then pushed a woman who tried to intervene. In order to arrest him, the SWAT team had to be called. According to NBC's Scott McFarlane, prosecutors today alleged in court that following the insurrection, Mock threatened a witness multiple times when the FBI was soliciting tips to apprehend him. And yet, we're still seeing January 6th apologists like Senator Ron Johnson comparing the Capitol insurrectionists to the small minority of people who were arrested during the Black Lives Matter protests of last year, which were usually for minor offenses like curfew violations. In an exchange with D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser today, Senator Johnson appeared to suggest that the January 6th defendants are being treated unfairly by comparison. Do you know how many people were arrested for the summer riots? 
Uh, we've had dozens of people arrested over the last year. How, are, how many are still being detained? I don't know. I don't know the answer to do, that. Do you know whether by using geolocation, did we go and arrest people who participated in the summer riots uh, in their individual states, like we did with the January 6th uh, breachers? Uh, if you're asking about how the Federal Bureau of Investigation operates, you'll have to address those <clears throat> questions to them. Meanwhile, just moments ago, NBC News reported that Speaker Pelosi informed the House Democratic Steering and Policy Committee that she will create a select committee to study the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And with me now is Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for The Nation. And Ellie, let's go into this because we're the Proud Boys uh, and the, um, the three percenters and the Oath Keepers. We're starting to see a lot more sort of congealing that there were organized groups that were plotting and planning the attack. Um, what does that mean for the cases of these individual people? Does, do, we, do we start to see conspiracy charges? What do you think happens next? Yeah, Republicans, they're not sending their best, are they? They're sending <laughs> criminals uh, to go to the Capitol, aren't they? Um, yeah, what we hope now is that some of the more cowardly white domestic terrorists will start to flip on the organizing white domestic terrorists so that we can uh, start to have um, real conspiracy charges being brought against the kind of overarching organization. That's kind of how a criminal investigation of this magnitude works. It's how it's supposed to work. You start by kind of arresting everybody, kind of the lowest level, anybody. You know, there were 800 people who breached the Capitol. All of them committed a crime. You kind of round all of them up. You kind of lean on the weakest among them, and you start to try to build charges against the actual organizers, the kingpins of the insurrection. We're starting to see that happen um, uh, at the ground level in terms of these particular groups. What we're not seeing, mm -hmm. so go ahead. No, go. What we're not seeing, though, and what I still need to see from this Justice Department is any kind of commitment or statement or ability to prosecute the true intellectual leaders of this movement, many of whom seem to be in, seem to be in Congress, right? Many of whom seem to be leaders of the Republican Party. What's happening right now, the analogy that I've made before, is that this, this would be like if after 9-11, the government said, well, we got the people on the planes— and we didn't go after Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and we didn't go after Osama bin Laden. We need to get the very top-level people who planned, organized, and thought out this attack on our country. And I don't yet see Merrick Garland's Justice Department being willing to prosecute the powerful. They're willing to prosecute these kind of low-level people. And sure, we're trying to get this conspiracy charge together, but the actual power brokers who conceived of this attack— I don't see that yet, and I'm still hoping there's still time for me to see it. There's still time for, for them to do that work. Well, Scott McFarlane is reporting that at least in one instance, uh, a defendant is being asked whether they know any members of Congress. So maybe we're going to start seeing it going in that direction. What do you make of, of Speaker Pelosi's announcement that she's going to go ahead and convene a select committee on her own since Republicans don't seem to want to go along? Do you think that helps to advance uh, just our knowledge of what happened yeah, history needs to be recorded. And the fact that the Republicans don't want to be part of the recording of, the, of this history is quite frankly fine with me. Like, I, I don't think that the people who 
who were who were part who, who were complicit in planning this and carrying this out should be involved in investigating themselves quite frankly i believe that there are members of congress who gave aid and comfort to the terrorists and i don't have a problem with the democrats investigating that on their own steam this myth of bipartisanship this myth that things are only real if you get some white insurrectionists to agree with you is not one that i subscribe to obviously i'm not a christian cinema voter so i <laughs> I, I am totally okay with Pelosi and the Democrats in Congress doing this on their own. Yeah. Uh, let, let's move on to another topic here. Donald Trump's former bodyguard uh, is now under scrutiny. This is uh, the Wall Street Journal reporting. New York prosecutors are investigating whether a top Trump organization executive named Matthew Calamari received tax-free fin- fringe benefits as part of their probe into whether uh, tr- Donald Trump's company uh, and its employees illegally avoided paying taxes. Prosecutors in recent weeks advised Mr. Calamari and his son that they should hire their own lawyer, uh, per people familiar with the matter. What does it say to you? Because it doesn't feel like Weissman, who that was the guy but he said, well, if he flips, it's over. That doesn't feel like that's happening. He seems to be standing by his man. The fact that they're going after a second person in the company, what does that say to you? Yeah, first of all, with Weiss, not yet. Weisselberg hasn't flipped yet. Life is long, right? And like when, let's see if Weisselberg uh, changes his tune when his name is on, the, is on an indictment somewhere. Look, this is the choice that a lot of Trump organization officials are going to start to have to make. Do they want to be witnesses or do they want to be defendants? Prosecutors will give them that option in good faith. Um, yeah. And they will have to decide whether or not they are going to, you said stand by their man, whether or not they are going to be so loyal to the Trump organization that they are willing to go to jail for crimes that I believe they did at the behest of the people in charge there. Or if they're going to tell prosecutors the truth, that is their choice. That is their choice to make freely. We don't know how all those choices are going to play out yet, including the case of Weisselberg. We, we don't yet know how, what kinds of pressures are being brought upon him. And we certainly haven't seen the most pressure brought upon him, which would be jail time, yeah, um, okay. which is what he's looking at if he keeps his mouth shut. Lightning round. Lightning round. 30 seconds for each answer. Mark Elias announced there's going to be new lawsuits. The Texas League of United Latin American Citizens and Voter Latino filing a suit against that Texas voter suppression law. Uh, do you think that that is a signal that we might see the Garland uh, Justice Department go after these laws? Somebody needs to bring Mark Elias some water. You know, maybe some 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 orange slices. To do that he in Georgia. is doing God's work. Yeah. Hopefully Merrick Garland get, has his back now. The last uh, one. Donald Trump asked his Justice Department to stop Saturday Night Live from teasing him. I literally am just doing this story because I want to hear you respond to the fact that he was so whiny about SNL teasing him that he wanted the Justice Department to go after them. Your thoughts? <laughs> Oh, the fragility of white men. It is delicious, is it not? I would love to see Michael Che deposed by the Trump job, right? Wouldn't that have been, that would have been worth the price of admission right there. So, he would have had yeah, the, no, the, that's, yeah, he would have done that straight face where he's just like, what? Yeah, no, I would actually love to see that too. Uh, thank you very much, Ellie Mastal. It's always great having you on. Okay, still ahead. This is why we can't have nice things. Like a lockdown-free future. Health officials are sounding the alarm as the U.S. gets ready to miss its July 4th vacation vaccination goal with a deadly COVID variant on the rise in some states. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy joins us next. Stay with us. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Today, the White House acknowledged that the Biden administration will fall short of President Biden's goal to vaccinate 70 percent of Americans by July 4th. It did, however, meet its 70 percent goal for people 30, age 30 and older and is on track to reach the target for those 27 and older by July 4th. Getting young people vaccinated remains a hurdle for the government's monumental effort, along with getting through to the vaccine hesitant. Here's a strategy. Listen to comedian Chris Rock. I don't know what's up with people not wanting to get vaccinated. I don't know what's in there. I don't know what's in Fruit Loops. Okay, (laughs) you know what I mean. I don't know what's in a lot of stuff. I had a Jerry curl. What the hell was in there? You think I knew what they were putting in my scalp? (laughs) Touche. Joining me now is U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy. I mean, it's a really good point, Dr. Murthy. I mean, people drink Coca-Cola. You know, you can clean your engine with that. Nobody says, you know, I wonder if this is going to hurt my insides. They just go, 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 you know. But but people are saying with something that was developed, you know, by scientists who had great risk, they had to get it right. People are still afraid to take it. What do you make of this, the ongoing hesitancy? Not the political one, but the real one. Well, Joy, I enjoy that Chris Rock segment, by the way. Thanks for playing that. Sure. <laughs> um, but I got to say, look, it, it, we know that there are people out there who have questions about the vaccine, and, and that's okay. Look, whenever you are about to put something inside your body, you should know the facts about it. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of misinformation, Joy, that's been floating around. We find, in fact, among the unvaccinated, that two-thirds of people who haven't gotten a vaccine yet either believe some common myths out there about the vaccine or think those myths might be true. Myths like if you get the vaccine, you might get COVID. Absolutely not true. Or myths like if you get the vaccine, it may lead to infertility or to DNA mutations. Also categorically not true. Uh, So this is what we hear out there. And we know that aided and abetted by social media and other uh, technology that this misinformation is spreading. But that's why we've got to be really aggressive joy about getting out there, making sure people have access to accurate information so they can make good decisions about their health. That's why we've been mobilizing a variety of messengers, uh, Joy, from local doctors and nurses uh, to influencers and to others uh, to make sure that people are hearing from folks they trust in local communities and that they have access to the vaccine, which you can now get easier uh, than ever before, given how many access points we have set up. Yeah. If I, if I could make a suggestion, y'all need to get on TikTok because a lot of the disinformation is on TikTok. You guys need to get a TikTok account and get somebody to do that. Get Madea or somebody to okay. do some TikToks for y'all. You know, um, Joy, on TikTok, we actually have had a number of us uh, working with TikTok influencers. And you're absolutely right. My gosh, they have extraordinary reach. Uh, they're trusted by lots of young people. We've got to do a lot more stuff like that. So great yeah. suggestion. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about this Delta variant. Uh, my son uh, the other day was calling me, telling me, talking about this Delta variant. What? It's scary. Um, it's much more contagious. It now makes up 20%. It first was identified in India. It now makes up 20% of all the new cases. How, how much danger are we in that we're going to go right back into the drink here in the fall because of this variant? And how dangerous is it? Well, Joy, I'm I'm quite worried about the Delta variant, and it is more transmissible, significantly more transmissible. It also may be more dangerous in terms of severity of illness uh, that it causes. And we've seen how quickly it has taken over in the United Kingdom, where it's become 
getting close to 100% of new COVID cases, uh, you know, our Delta. And we've seen a surge here too. So I am worried, but let me do, tell you who I'm worried about. I'm worried about those who are not vaccinated because what we have found is based on the, the studies coming out of the UK, that if you are vaccinated, you are actually quite well protected, uh, okay. particularly against hospitalizations and deaths. The worry is if you're not vaccinated, uh, that you're at even greater risk than you were before. So what I don't want to see, Joy, is a growing divide in our country between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated. We've got to close that gap. That's why we're working so hard to get people vaccinated everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in the, in this country, we can't do what, you know, in the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, the leader there, the autocrat there, so he's going to jail those who refuse their shots. Like, here it's voluntary. Like, you, you can't really get people to do it if they don't want to. Let me go through some of the good news, though. Um, 65.4 percent um, of Americans have received at least one dose. 55.9 percent are fully vaccinated. Age 12 and older, it's at 62.5 percent. At 18 or over, it's at 65.4 percent. We went from being really among the worst in the world to really being in not terrible shape. How much protection does that give us? How close are we to something like a herd immunity that will protect at least our kids in school and, uh, you know, younger Americans, at least in states where it's uh, where there are high levels of vaccination? Well, Joy, I'm really glad you asked, because what's interesting, given how big a country America is and how diverse and varied our regions are, is that we've got some states and regions which have exceeded 80 percent of vaccination rates, but others that are below 50 percent. And so your level of risk, uh, your kids' level of risk, really depends on where you live and how high yeah. the community vaccination rates are. And this is why we always say, and I say this as you know, dad who's got two young kids, three and four, who's, you know, don't have, we don't have a vaccine available for kids that young. So I'm worried about my kids just like yeah. many other parents are. But this is why we say that the vaccination effort is more than about what you're doing for yourself. It's about the step you're taking to help protect those around you from getting infected. Because even if you don't get seriously ill, you can transmit the virus to others who are more vulnerable. And Joy, you know what we've been hearing the last couple of weeks in particular, more and more data about long COVID systems, yeah. symptoms, the shortness of breath, chest pain, headaches, mm-hmm. brain fog, that people experience more than a month after their symptoms. And we're finding that even people who have mild or asymptomatic infection uh, can show up with these long, uh, long haul symptoms. So there are many reasons to get vaccinated, but the way yeah. that we're going to get there, Joy, is not only by each of us, taking steps to get the right information, get vaccinated. But we've also got to turn around to our family and friends, ask them if they've been vaccinated, help them get information or go to vaccines.gov to help them get a place close to them where they can get vaccinated. It's by stepping up for each other that we're going to get this our country protected against COVID and really move forward. Absolutely. Get vaccinated so you can live to eat more Fruit Loops which you shouldn't be eating all the time because that stuff's got a lot of sugar. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Vivek Murthy. Really appreciate you. Okay, and still ahead, I will reveal tonight's absolute worst, which involves a man who saluted insurrectionists lecturing us about how the democratic process should work. But first, 13 Democratic candidates running for the famed title of mayor of New York City with polls closing just over an hour from now. What can we expect? And why does this race matter for the rest of the country? The great Steve Kornacki is at the big board. There he is. Has he got his khakis? Oh, yeah. He's at the big board. We're back after this. Polls are closing in the New York City mayoral primary in just over an hour. If you don't live in the Big Apple, you might be asking, well, why should you care? Well, New York is larger than life. It's a city that creates larger than life politicians who often wind up taking the national stage from Fiorella LaGuardia to Ed Koch, Rudy Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg, just to name a few. So there's a chance we'll be hearing a lot more from the winner of this Democratic primary. This is also one of the few races this year where the candidates represent a microcosm of America. 
from the more moderate frontrunner Eric Adams to more progressive candidates like Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley to Andrew Yang. This is the first time the race will be decided by rank choice voting. And NBC national political correspondent Steve Kornacki is at the big board to explain exactly what that means and what we can expect. Go, Steve, go. Well, Joe, yeah, what we're also watching here in some ways is is a grand experiment. New York City, eight and a half million people. There is no jurisdiction, meaning no city or no state in the country as big as New York City that's tried something like this, ranked choice voting. So we're all going to kind of get an education here on how this works and if this works. So let's take a look, first of all, how does it work? Democratic primary, there are 13 candidates. If you're a Democratic voter in New York City, your ballot is basically going to look like this. You're going to see all of these candidates and you're going to be asked not just, hey, who's your first choice, but also who's your second choice, your third choice, your fourth choice, and your fifth choice. You can rank them one through five. So you could actually check off five Five different names on the ballot if you want to. So that's what folks are doing today. There was also an early voting period. There's some mail-in voting, too. But that's what the ballot looks like. Now, how are they going to determine a winner from people marking off all these different names on the ballot? So let's do it this way. Let's show you what the final poll looked like. This is a Marist WNBC poll. These are not the actual results. We're just putting these up on the screen because we want to just have some numbers to work off of to give you a sense of how ranked choice voting works. So let's pretend that the numbers we see in the final poll here ended up being the results. People's first choice. You know, the first choice is Eric Adams, first choice Garcia. Let's pretend you're looking at the first choice results from this primary. What would happen in ranked choice voting? Well, the first thing that would happen is they would go to the last place candidate, and that would be this guy Foldenauer you see right here. And the last place candidate would be eliminated, would be out of the race. Then they would take the supporters for that last place candidate. And there aren't that many here. It's a fraction of a point. But they would take the supporters and they would say, OK, let's look at the ballots. Who were the second choice of these voters? Some might have Wiley. Some might have Adams. They would reallocate those votes based on who the second choice was for the Foldenauer supporters. Then they would run the numbers again. We'd get the results. And whoever came in last place in the next round, let's say it's Isaac Wright, would then be eliminated. You would then take the supporters. You'd look at their next choice You'd reallocate them. You'd run the numbers. And on and on we go. They are going to do this for 12 rounds until it gets down to two candidates standing. They'll run the numbers one more time. And then that will be the winner of the Democratic primary. And again, in in overwhelmingly Democratic New York, very likely that candidate then becomes the next mayor. So, again, the polls are open till nine o'clock. Mail ballots have to be postmarked today, but still have a week to get in. New York City takes a while with its elections. Long way of saying, I don't think we're going to know who won this until the middle of July. (laughs) It's so confusing, but only you, Steve Kornacki, could make that make sense. Excellent job. It seems like a huge headache to me, but okay, New York City, go ahead, do you. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate you. All right, let's bring in Christina Greer, Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. I am so glad that Steve explained that to me because I have been completely confused, Christina, about what this all is about. Uh, And by the way, I'm going to note that my, my, you know, my chickadees have have sent me their I voted, so they they did their part. Um, What is this looking like? Does the ranked choice voting sort of system impart anything positive to the electorate? Like, what's the point? 
Right. So it's supposed to give voters more of an option uh, so they they don't have to sort of choose someone strategically. They can really vote their preferences. We've seen this work in Minneapolis. We've seen it work in San Francisco. You know, obviously, there's some real opponents. Uh, Some of the candidates do not believe in ranked choice voting. Eric Adams is one of the main opponents. But, you know, what's what's fascinating is this. One, you know, this is a Democratic town, but we have to put an asterisk on that because we've had 20 years of Republican mayors. So, yes, we are by and large Democratic. However, we've had 20 years of two terms of Giuliani and three of Bloomberg. And Bloomberg was a Republican. He caucused with George Bush and Governor Pataki. So we have to be clear about that. Two, this is the first time we have a very diverse slate, as you saw, you know, in your first picture montage. There was no David Dinkins there. This time we have four African-American candidates who represent the ideological diversity of the African-American community. And so there's so many options for voters. This is also the first time we're we're using ranked choice voting. And some people worry about the education that we've given New Yorkers. You know, many New Yorkers don't actually read. They speak English or they speak their particular language that their ballot comes in, but they don't necessarily read that. And so there are some concerns about uh, how it will be implemented because as Steve said, we actually, you all chuckled, but we might not know until mid-July. We, we won't really have exit polling this evening. So the longer it takes, we know, as Joy, you've reported on this uh, extensively, the longer it takes, it obviously erodes a voter confidence in, in sort of who the actual winner will be when the results finally come out, because yeah. we do uh, have to wait for absentee ballots to come in. And I participated in early voting. Uh, and so we'll, we'll have to count those votes as well. Yeah. And apologies for not having David Diggins in that montage. He should have been in the montage. Let's talk about these candidates, because Andrew Yang is on one sort of sort of strange sort of side. He's had some flubs and, you know, stepped in it a couple of times. You've got Eric Adams, who seems sort of like almost like the Giuliani friendly candidate, but he's somehow ahead. You've got Maya Wiley, who viewers of MSNBC will be very familiar with because she was on a lot as a lawyer. Is there somebody who's considered a favorite here other than Eric Adams? And why Eric Adams? Because he does seem to be more the, you know, I don't know, more conservative candidate. He is. He's more of the moderate candidate. But keep in mind, Joy, when crime and public safety are primary issues for voters, that's when you see a lot of voters wanting to hear more about a former police officer who's more moderate and centrist. I would not put Andrew Yang in the progressive category in this particular race. He may have behaved that way in the presidential. But no, our our more progressive candidates are Diane Morales, Maya Wiley and Scott Stringer. Uh, Catherine Garcia is running more of a technocratic Bloombergian style uh, middle of the road campaign. Andrew Yang is all over the place. Uh, you know, he's insulting the mentally ill. He's one way on homelessness. So he's he's sometimes moderate to conservative. Sometimes he's progressive with universal basic income. So he's kind of a wild card. He obviously comes with a large national presence of very strong blue hat supporters. Um, so it's hard to call. But, you know, when crime and public safety are are trending as the primary issues for voters, uh, we, we know historically voters tend to be a little more conservative. So it'll be interesting to see if the Maya Wiley strategy, because of the three progressive candidates, it's she's uh, the front runner right now. If that double down progressive strategy, she was endorsed by AOC and Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. If that's something that New Yorkers will want. But also, this is when your second and your third choice actually does matter. Right. So even if Maya Wiley is, is uh, the majority of people's second choice uh, vote, she could actually become the 110th mayor of New York City because of ranked choice voting and how people have to really think about not just their first choice, but the second, third and fourth and fifth choices on the ballot. Very quickly, uh, because the significance you brought up, David Dinkins, we're looking at potentially the second black mayor, maybe even the first black woman mayor or Latina mayor uh, of this of this city. It's a big deal. 
Right. Well, I mean, we don't have any Latina candidates. Catherine Garcia is not Latina. Her last name is. Ah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that is that is good to something know that uh, voters need to have, have come to discover throughout the race. But I think, you know, with Ray McGuire, Eric Adams, uh, Maya Wiley and Diane Morales representing the, the vast ideological diversity of, of the black electorate uh, yeah. in New York City. Um, of uh, over eight and a half million voters. It, it ver- thank or you for eight breaking and a half million that. citizens. Eight and a half um, million citizens. Absolutely. Christina Greer, thank you very much for breaking that down for us. Okay, up next. The absolute worst tonight includes a senator telling D.C. residents they don't deserve statehood. And it gets worse from there. Stay with us. For just the second time in history, the Senate held a hearing on legislation to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state. The D.C. statehood bill has already passed the House twice, and the Biden administration supports it. And today, Washington Mayor Muriel Bowser made a case for equal representation for the more than 700,000 residents of the district. Senators, we ask you to right the wrong that occurred some 220 years ago when the residents of the District of Columbia were stripped of their full congressional representation, and we ask you to do it now. Bowser argued there's no legal or constitutional basis for excluding residents of the district with a population higher than Vermont and Wyoming, and one that's currently 46 percent black from having a say in the democratic process since D.C. has no senators and just one delegate in the House who can't even vote. Naturally, Republicans are against the bill, mostly using the excuse of how Democratic the district already is. Just over 5 percent of D.C. residents voted for the disgraced former president last November. At today's Senate Homeland Security hearing, the usual suspects, Wisconsin's Ron Johnson and Oklahoma's James Langford, offered up more bogus arguments like D.C. is too rich for statehood. There's certainly poverty here, but this district is not made of, of, of many dis- disadvantaged individuals. This is an elite group of people here that have a vested interest in the power of the federal government. It's been well known that when you move to Washington, D.C. at any point, you're moving to an area that doesn't have a two senators or a House member. That's a volitional choice. No one's compelled to actually be here. It's actually Ron Moscow's little helper. The, dis- the percent of D.C. residents living in poverty is higher than in Wisconsin. And, and Senator Langford didn't address how it disenfranchises the third of native-born Washingtonians who are overwhelmingly black residents. Any hoopst, there was Missouri Republican Josh Hawley whining about how the bill undermines our democratic process. It is a fundamental premise of our democracy that the Constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land. What Congress cannot do is override the Constitution anytime it becomes inconvenient for a majority in Congress. Yes, yes, yes. As we all know, Mr. Fist Pump to the insurrectionists, trying to decapitate our democracy has no business lecturing anyone about our democratic process. But for that, he and his fellow Republicans, who seem to really dislike democracy, especially when it applies to the black folks uh, in the district, in other words, and otherwise, for those bad faith arguments against D.C. statehood, you all are tonight's absolute worst. And that is tonight's readout. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.